Marissa had about a year or two where she would constantly ask me and we would constantly try to figure out what's the deal with John the Baptist. Uh, that was like her number one question, right? Like, what the heck? She had no idea how to understand John, John the Baptist because he's a super fascinating guy. He's really unique and his message is super fascinating and it's really unique. And if you're new to the Bible and you're not that familiar with John the Baptist, let me, let me try to illustrate this in maybe a way that we could try and comprehend. So I want you to imagine that people in Madison start to hear about this crazy guy out near Devil's Lake who's this really solitary, bizarre figure, and he starts garnering attention. And uh, he wears deer skins for clothes only. Uh, he forages for mushrooms and berries near Devil's Lake and, like, eats all the insects that he can find. And he spends his time baptizing people in the lake. And he preaches really seriously intense open-air sermons, okay, to anybody who will listen to him. And he's just walking around in the wilderness out there. Um, and he's not a part of a church. He's not a part of a political party. He's kind of set apart as this unique person, solitary figure. And if that wasn't crazy enough, here's what gets me about John the Baptist. People in Madison start flocking to the guy near Devil's Lake. And don't think, you know, these aren't the gullible, like, dull people of Madison. Politicians from the Capitol, professors and students, tech people, Eastsiders, Westsiders, conservatives, liberals, pacifists, military, all kinds of people start flocking to this guy near, near Devil's Lake. That would be insane, right? Am I communicating that in a way that sounds crazy? Uh, that is what is happening in this passage with John the Baptist. It's just as intense. John is this super weird set-apart mountain man. So from the Bible, we get this picture that he wears fur clothes. Uh, he eats honey and locusts. And when he preaches, the guy spits fire. Um, you heard it in Max's reading of that. He, he's an intense man. And people flock to him. Crowds head out to meet and see John the Baptist. Jewish leaders, Roman tax collectors, Roman soldiers, for goodness sake. And my biggest question all week, which I might even have asked some of you, is what is the draw? What's appealing about this man? As I thought about it, I think people were drawn to John himself, first of all, because um, he's different. People are used to hearing people speak and be passionate and trying to create energy, but most of the time, they want your money, they want your vote, they want your support, they want something. And with John, it was not that. That's what's so unique about John. John's whole life and ministry was pointing to something else. He could care less about your vote, he could care less about your money, so he was filled with passion. John's great quote is, I must become less, he must become greater. He must become greater, I must become less. And I think seeing that kind of selfless passion on anybody is really, really attractive. But I think most of all, that characteristic in John gave focus and attention to what he was pointing to. The biggest draw of all for John was his message. People were compelled to look for what he was pointing to. They were drawn to his pointer finger. 
So let's dive in and take a look to solve the question of John the Baptist. Um, open up to your, your order of service to your bulletin where the gospel is. Quick aside, we're gonna be in the gospel of Luke for a long time, and we print it in our bulletin, and that's awesome, but I would actually encourage you to bring your Bible if you have one. Here's why. I would love for you to see what's in front of this passage and what's behind it. You can see, oh my gosh, Jesus is a boy in the temple before. This is the beginning 30 years later when Jesus comes afterwards. Uh, so it's cool to bring your Bible to church. You get super cool points, and we'll, uh, we'll pass them all out after the service. Just kidding. But wouldn't it be cool to have your own Bible to work through the Gospel of Luke for, for the next year? If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'll get you one. Sound good? All right, look at verse one with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, which is also a place in Texas. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Before we dive into the heart of John's message, I want to talk a little bit about all these names and dates at the beginning, because Luke is doing something really cool here. Um, if you look at verse 1, you see all these names of political and religious leaders, and then this statement that the word of the Lord came to John. What's amazing is that this is the exact formula before all the great prophetic moments of the Old Testament and in history, this exact type of thing, Okay. So your, your ears, if, if, for Jewish people especially, if they knew their Old Testament, they'd be going, oh! let me read you the beginning of Ezekiel. This is how Ezekiel starts. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So when Luke opens up this story like this, he wants to do two things. Number one, he's placing it in a specific, particular historical moment. So if this was written today in modern times, it would start like this. Uh, in the third year of Ronald Reagan's second term, when so-and-so was governor of Wisconsin, when so-and-so was bishop of the Diocese of Madison, the word of the Lord came to John. These are real people. This is a real thing. So Luke wants you to know this happened. But second, by imitating this formula, he also wants you to know that this is not just a random thing that happened. John is not some random crazy man in the wilderness who all of a sudden had an idea. The word of God started outside of him and it came to him. The word of God comes to him and it overwhelms John so that he speaks. So this is this great moment where you realize, oh my goodness. God is speaking again prophetically through his people. John is the last and great prophet. And all this means that it's not John that's important, it's his message that's important. John is just the messenger. And if you notice in Luke 3, it also says that the message itself goes way back 
It was foretold all the way back in Isaiah, if you look in verses four to six, and in our Malachi passage. Now, what was the message? The core of John's ministry and his message are this, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. In other words, God is coming. Get ready. He's actually coming. Clear the way. Do everything you can. He's about to show up, so get ready. When you read all the language in verses four to six, I want you to think of the transcontinental railway being built. That's exactly what Isaiah and John are doing here, okay? There was no railway, and then it had to go through the west and all the Rocky Mountains. And there were rivers and valleys that had to be built up for a railroad track to go over it. Then there was a huge mountain, and they had to either tunnel through it or, or raise it down with dynamite in order for it to go around. There was a crooked place. They had to make it straight so that there could be a clear, clean highway. John is saying, get out there like John Henry and clear the way. Prepare it, because God is coming. And he's saying this, I love, look at verse six. So that all flesh, everybody gets a chance to see the salvation of God. So what was the draw? I think people were drawn to John because deep down they wanted to meet God. Or I think it's more correct to say they wanted God to come into their life. They wanted to see the salvation of God. I think they could feel the word coming over John and hearing him speak it and point to something that was about to happen. And they were drawn to that. And I think we're just like these people. Don't put these, these people, these crowds who are going out to John in like an ancient, unenlightened, stupid box. Like, well, they lived forever ago. They know nothing. No, 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 no. Who's the basketball player who always does this? No, 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 no. Takeme Mutombo. You should do that. No, 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 no. These people were human beings. They had sorrows. They had joys. They had jobs. They had romances. They had deep thoughts and passions, and they were drawn to it. And I imagine they want what we want, which is for God to come into your mess. You want God to step into your life. You want to experience his love and his power. Who doesn't want that? Amen? They longed to see God's glory revealed. That's why I imagine they were drawn to John in a lot of ways. And remember, this season is Advent. We're thinking about the coming of Jesus, where we celebrate the first coming at Christmas, so we're preparing our hearts for that. We're thinking about his second coming. We're getting ready for it, and we're thinking about how Jesus comes to us even now in the present. So this word from John, which is why it's in our lectionary, and we read it this morning after last week. If you were here last week, we talked about how Jesus is coming. The word from John is for us. It's for you. It's for me. John is saying to us, if you want to see God's glory revealed, if you want to be ready when he comes, prepare the way. Make the crooked paths straight. Level that valley. Bring it up. Raise that mountain to the ground. And your question upon hearing that should be, 
how in the world do I do that? How do I metaphorically become John Henry and prepare the way? And that's a great question. I think you can break down his core message of prepare the way into two parts, okay? So if you were gonna have a little nugget to take with you this week to think about, it would be prepare the way, and there's two ways that prepare the way I think is broken down in John's teaching. The first is this. Preparation begins with repentance. Preparation begins with repentance. If the core of John's role in life was to prepare the way, the core of his message of preparation had to do with repentance. It is everywhere in this passage. Look at verse three with me. When the word of God comes over John, when it washes over him like a wave that overwhelms him and transforms his life, what does he do? It says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Read with me starting in verse seven. Um, This is when you really start to see that John doesn't want anybody's money and he doesn't want anybody's vote. He could care less because nobody would talk like this to crowds who come out to you (laughs) if you weren't completely concerned about something else, okay? Verse seven, and he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to him to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. You'll see what he's talking about later on in the passage. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So a couple things from that. Preparing the way doesn't have to do with doing certain things. Um, So it's not gonna be like implementing new practices or New Year's resolutions, anything like that, that is not how you prepare the way, is by doing stuff. It also has nothing to do with how spiritual you are. Notice, uh, don't begin to say that you have Abraham as your father, Kinbe Mumutumbo, no, 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 no. I.e., don't think just because you're Jewish, i.e., because you, you have religious pedigree, you're super spiritual, just because of that, that's not preparing the way. No, preparing the way for God to come in your life begins with repentance, which is another way to say it begins with your heart because repentance is a matter of your heart, your heart of hearts, the deepest place inside you. John is not talking about actual roadblocks for Jesus, right? Jesus isn't around the corner behind a mountain or a forest and it's like, I can't get through. Like somebody clear the way for me. He's talking about roadblocks to God in your heart, in my heart valleys and mountains in your soul that need raising or leveling. And how do you clear those paths? Repentance. We need to define that word, repentance. What does the Bible mean by repentance? Um, I like to think about words weighing a certain amount. It's like there's a weight room up there. Uh, The word repentance in the Bible is really heavy, super heavy, deep, broad, big word. Um, But let me see if I can simplify it as best as I can into today's language. Here's how I would define repentance. It is humbling yourself in your heart, admitting you're small and wrong before God and turning to him for hope and forgiveness. So 
It's humbling yourself. It's in your heart of hearts, unclenching your fist. Admitting that you're not the center of the world, that you're not the hottest stuff on the block, that you've made some mistakes, which is another way of admitting that you need help, which is really hard to do. And then it's turning from those things, it's turning to God for hope and for forgiveness. But I think in my, the way that I think about this, it's just a, it's like your heart just unclenching its fist before God. It's getting low, getting out of the way. Again, John the Baptist, he must become greater, I must become less. It's that bit of in your highway kind of stepping to the side and admitting you want God to come and you need help. That's how you prepare the way for the Lord. That's how a relationship with God begins and that's how it's sustained. So whatever part of the journey of faith you're on, all of us need this. It's not just for some people. And it might sound simple, but this is the hardest thing to do. It is literally easier to bore a tunnel in an actual mountain than to move the will. There's no tech, there's no app. Humans have created a lot of technology to create railways across mountains. There's no app for this. Everybody knows what it's like when you encounter in yourself or in another person an immovable, I'm unwilling to unclench my, my fist heart. Give me some nods. You guys know what I'm talking about? Megan Lidford recommended to me a podcast, which you can talk to her about and she can recommend to you as well. But it's, it's on church planning, but it's to, for an audience that aren't Christians. So it's like a startup podcast. It's fascinating. And uh, one of the episodes stood out to me when the journalist, who's not an active Christian, just because he's like doing a, you know, a story on this church planner, goes with him on a silent retreat, which really freaks him out because I imagine he doesn't have a lot of time in his life where he goes to like a convent in silence for two days and just like prays and thinks about spiritual stuff. So he admits on the way there he's really freaked out and he doesn't know what to do. And this church planner, pastor, gives him, like, here's a way that you could do it. Here's three prompts that I want you to journal about. I need, I fear, and I surrender are these three prompts that he gives him. And it is fascinating because this guy uh, who I was really drawn to, he's really vulnerable and honest, and he kind of walks people through what it was like for him to do that. And he said he gets to I need, and he just filled up a journal. Like, he knew what he needed. He needed so many things. He gets to I fear, and he... Again, very, very in touch with his fears, was able to do everything. But he gets to, I surrender, and the page remained blank. Could not write anything down. That's called a roadblock. The word surrender is not in our generation's vocabulary. And he talks about how he knew then when he was facing the word, I surrender, in his journal, and nothing that he had an issue. He couldn't even really define it, but he knew I'm incapable of trusting, I'm incapable of unclenching my heart to anything. Marissa and I one time were at a dinner with one of our dear friends and she told us emphatically, I will never, ever humble my will or surrender my will before God, ever. I will go to church, I'll even read the Bible, I'll talk to you about whatever, but I'm never going to do that in my heart. That's a roadblock. John is saying, clear it. Level that valley. Raise it up. Prepare the way. It's the hardest thing to do, but it's not impossible in the Lord Jesus. 
He raises the dead. There's no heart too hard for Jesus, amen? So there's always hope. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, my heart's hard, well, Jesus died and he was in a grave, okay? So he can get past that. That's why we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to move in us. If you want more of God in your life, it starts here. It starts in your individual heart. When we read a passage like this, I know it's easy to think, I'm so glad so-and-so is in this room because they need to repent so bad. Like, yes, you know. Do your hardest to not let John's word slide past you to another person, okay? All of us know somebody with a hard heart in our life that we wanna see them unclench their fist. Do your hardest to let it come to you without actually repenting in your heart before God, you could do every single Advent devotional thing we put in that little guide. You know, the Advent worship guide that has like a thousand things you could do. If you wanna change your life and you want more of God in your life, you could literally do every single one. If nothing starts in your heart, if you don't repent in your heart and humble yourself, none of that will change anything. You could read every book, every podcast, do every self-help thing you can imagine, Nothing will change. Everything flows from the fountainhead of repentance. Your personal repentance. And notice in verse three, I have to say this before we move off of repentance. It's a repentance for what? Forgiveness of sins. It's not just repentance. Repentance is the beginning. It's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Marissa and I were talking about this week and she said, there's never, repent, there's never forgiveness without repentance, but there's also never repentance without forgiveness. Those go hand in hand. So before we, we move on to the second part of John's message, I just wanna stop and kind of apply this lest it be extremely abstract and like metaphorical, okay? I wanna challenge you to act on this week, to act on this message this week, to actually repent. Okay, so I'm giving you an excuse. I'm giving you a chance to do this, which is all John's, right? It's John calling us to this, not me. You're not repenting for a guilt trip. You're not repenting because I told you to do so. You're repenting because you wanna prepare the way to get more of Jesus in your life. You get this opportunity to prepare the way, amen? So here's what I wanna challenge you to do this week. And I actually do, I'm not just saying this. I want you to sit down with somebody you love who knows you and say out loud using actual human verbal words, here's what I think I need to repent of. Here's, here's places in my life that I need to humble myself and admit before God that I've been small, I've messed up in some areas, and I know that I need help and I need his forgiveness. And I wanna do this because I want more of him. I want you... I, I want to challenge you to actually do that. If you don't have anybody to do that with, call me or somebody else from our church and we can do that. It's really important that it don't just stay bottled and unspoken in your heart. You need to say those things. Just as an example, okay, I was really convicted by this this week and I did this with Marissa. I sat down with her, I opened my mouth and I repented. And guess what? It was awesome. I felt things shift inside me. I felt it get a little bit clearer. The highway opened up a little bit more. Every great moment in all of history, this is a fact. 
Every great revival or movement of God begins with people repenting together. It begins with this wave of repentance. And before the coming of Jesus Christ, the greatest movement of God in all of history, how does it start? Repentance. John, in God's wisdom, is overcome by the word of God, and he walks through the wilderness and screams out, God's coming, repent, make way. Preparation begins with repentance. The second part is this. Repentance bears fruit. Repentance bears fruit. When you humble yourself before God and others, you open yourself up to needing God and the pathways are opened. Things start to flow. Life blossoms. Did you know, I kind of geeked out on the Transcontinental Railway this week. Before the Transcontinental Railroad, this is things that pastors do when you're trying to figure out a point, you have a deep dive. Um, before the, the railway was built, it took six months to travel across the country. And the minute it was finished, it took six days. That literally transformed our country. But imagine all the culture and industry that was bottlenecking on either side of the coasts that couldn't cross over beautiful places like Wisconsin, right to the other coast. And then it was built and then just, it all just flowed. That's what repentance does in your soul, in your life. It immediately opens up this place for just the rushing water of God to just flow through you. Lives are changed, families are changed, cities are changed. Repentance isn't the end, it's the beginning and it bears fruit. And John actually says this in verse three, did you catch this? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And what's cool about this story is you actually start to see the fruit starting to blossom in this little story. Um, look at verse 10. This is after all these people's hair has been absolutely singed by the fire that John is spitting at them because he's such a passionate guy. I love John the Baptist. Um, but look at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? To stop there for a second, you can actually tell that these, these people have repented in their heart. They've humbled themselves. Even to be able to ask that question means that they've been cut to the heart, right? So they asked John, what can we do? And here's what he answers them. Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics, I don't know, two coats, two blazers, two pairs of jeans, fill that in with whatever you want to, is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came also to be baptized, tax collectors, and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what about us? Hey, John, what about us? I love, people are like grappling. And he said to them, don't extort money from anybody by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. You are seeing repentance bearing fruit. And what is the fruit? Nothing less than full-blown cultural social renewal. Everything's changing. Food and resources are being distributed. Unjust military and financial systems are being reformed because people are humbling themselves in their heart and preparing the way for God. John's talking about really specific things for people in this passage. 
They were participating in corruption. They were greedy. John actually, if you want to know how his story ends, his head ends up literally on a platter at a dinner party. Why? Because he called out a Roman's sexual immorality. This guy was afraid of nobody, and I love him for it. But the order of this story really, really matters. He does not start with these things. That's really important. He doesn't start by saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. The call is first to repentance, and the fruit flows from the heart. Does that make sense? If John just started by telling people to change and do things differently, that would be moralism or legalism. And our culture, whether it's religious or not religious, is very, very susceptible to that kind of moralism or legalism. So we need to really pay attention to this order and this distinction. So if you want to see change in your life, if you want more of God in your life, don't pay attention to the symptoms. Don't just try to like implement and tack on like five more things to try to solve stuff. It begins with your heart. So preparation begins with repentance, and then, then repentance bears fruit in everywhere, in your own life, in your family, in your emotional wholeness, and then it makes its way to the military, for goodness sakes. Isn't that amazing? Right after John was saying all this stuff, everything came true. Jesus shows up at the end of Luke 3, and John goes, he points at him, which is why if you ever see an icon of John or any painting of John, it's all about his pointer finger. Ah, oh, what a godly guy. He just wanted to get out of the way. He just wanted to point to John or to Jesus. And eventually he was beheaded for it. Those who were willing to humble themselves and admit their need for the hope and forgiveness of God saw Jesus. They were ready for him. They clung to him. They fell down before him. But there were those who, because they were unable to repent in their hearts, to unclench their fists in pride, were unable to recognize Jesus, they were unable to accept the gift he was offering. And to them, the Bible actually says Jesus was a stumbling block. The way was closed. The train couldn't pass through. And John says the ax is laid at the root of the tree. So we must hearken to the seriousness of John's charge, the beauty and the severity of what John is saying. And that charge is for us to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what it means to prepare the way. Oh, that we would see more of Jesus Christ. Amen? Oh, that we would open up the transcontinental railway in our hearts in this church to have more of Jesus. I love in Joy to the World. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this lyric. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. May it be so. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness says this. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, come into our midst. Help us to repent, Lord. Not for a guilt trip, not for a not for shame, Lord, but out of a desire for more of you, for a desire of your fullness, help us to become less. Lord, we, we pray that this wave, that your word would come to us just like it came to John. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.